the first Sundays, uh, Gospel Sundays for the rest of the year, uh, we're going to do case studies on people who were converted in the Bible. Uh, this morning we're going to look at Cornelius, and we're going to do a number of other ones in the book of Acts, and Lord willing, perhaps even other places. But if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that the early church and their Christianity was vital and potent, and the reason was as they were growing through conversions. Uh, that's what we desire uh, to take place here at Faith Baptist Church, people from all the nations getting saved. And, and that's why we have the theme that we have this year, Be the Church. Um, being the church, if you read the book of Acts, was not just, as important as it is, was not just a set of doctrines or a grouping of propositional statements about truth. It was more than that. It was a converting power. It was something that God used to change people's lives. And one of the earliest lessons that the early church had to learn, and I want to review it again for us this morning, was this very statement in verse 36 in our text. Jesus, he is the Lord of all. So we want to take a look at our text here in verse 34. And it's interesting how Peter opens up, and you really have to read the rest of the chapter, which we didn't, but hopefully we'll tackle that on Wednesday night to put it in context. But in this context, uh, the gospel is, Peter's learning, is for everyone, not just Jewish people, but everyone. And so at the beginning of this text, if you'll look with me, it says, I understand, Peter says, that God shows no partiality, circle it, but every, in every nation. And at the end, it says, not only just every nation, but he says that everyone, last verse, who believes in him. So not only is it generically for every nation, but every individual person in every individual nation. And they translate in the ESV those terms, every and everyone, but it's actually the same word that's used eight times in our text. It's the word all. And it's used in verse 35, 36, 38, 39, 41, twice in 43, and of course the one I read in verse 44, because this is one of the themes that Peter is learning, that God is interested in giving the gospel to all people. God is willing and desirous that all should come to repentance. He later wrote himself in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And so as you read through, and if you look at Acts as a chronology a little bit, Jewish people get saved in Acts 1 through 7. In the early days and months of the church, almost every Christian was Jewish, but that's not how it remained. In Acts chapter 8, Samaritan people are evangelized. In same chapter, by Philip, the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch, which would have been Nubia in our day, he gets saved. He's African. So we have Jewish, Samaritan, African. Acts 10 with Cornelius, you have someone from Italy. He's European. They get saved. And all through chapters 1 through 12 in Acts, people who are biblically literate get saved. Almost everyone who's converted in the first half of the book of Acts in some way, shape, or form is familiar with and knows the Bible. But then when you get to the last half of Acts, 13 through 28 at the end, they are almost all biblically illiterate people. So here's what you find that God is doing. He's getting all kinds of people. He's not just wanting all people to get saved. He also wants all kinds of people, Jewish, Samaritan, African, European, biblically literate, illiterate, monotheistic people, polytheistic people, moral people, immoral people, rich people, poor people, male people, free people, female people, free people, Scythian, barbarian, on it goes. And the Bible is very careful all throughout the New Testament. 
to mention all of those categories repeatedly because here's what's true of Christianity. It is not tribalistic and it is not nationalistic. I, I saw a map this week in preparing for this study and it showed all the major religions of the world and where they are geographically on our globe. Um, Hinduism, which is mainly in India and Pakistan, over 80-some percent of all people who are Hindu are still living in and relig- worshiping in the very place geographically that thousands of years ago that religion started. The vast majority of people are there. If you look at Buddhism, it is still primarily over 90% of all Buddhists in the world are still in the Far East where it started many thousands of years ago. Islam, 90-some percent, 90-some are still in the Middle East. But then you come to Christianity, and what you find out is there is not one part of the world that has more than 25% of Christianity. And if you looked at the map, you have little colors for the other major religions of the world along the 1040 window, and everything else when it comes to Christianity is red. Every single part of the world Christianity has spread to. And you know why? Because that's who our God is. See, the gospel is for everyone, And that's why Peter starts out in verse 34 and he wants to tell you something about the theology lesson that he's learning from Cornelius getting saved. And you know what it is? That God shows no partiality. The word partiality in the Greek is a compound word. It has two parts, although it's one word. And here's what it means, literally, receive face. Now in our culture, we have an idiom that we say, you know, I think I lost face on that one. And it's about shame and honor. And here's what it says about God. God doesn't show honor to people and he doesn't bless people based on what's going on on the outside. Because save face, or as we would say, favoritism or partiality is a term that means judging by appearance, looking only on the outside without really first considering what's on the inside. It's a word used four times in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 3, 25, James 2, 1. And it's usually just showing partiality because a master over a slave or a rich person over a poor person. Have you ever done that, though? Have you ever judged a book by its cover? Have you ever gone to a restaurant and someone recommended it to you and you drive up to it and you're going like, whoa, that's not too good there. You know, it's kind of small, looks a little run down, maybe not even so clean on the outside. Then you go in and say, after you come out, you go, wow, that's some of the best food I've ever had. You judge the book by its cover, right? I mean, have you ever done that? I certainly have playing sports my whole life. I thought there were teams like, look at them. We're so much bigger than them and everything. And then we end up losing the game because I missed, I looked at the outside, right? I, I didn't think what was going on really. David and Goliath, remember how Goliath was spitting off all this stuff and giving him, you know, the, 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 you know, the talk, so to speak, and trash talking David, why? Because David was a little kid. He never had any armor and he doesn't come out there. He doesn't have any war experience and Goliath is huge. You know why? Because Goliath ch- judged David by what was on the outside. You see, can I say it this way to you? God doesn't have favorite faces. He doesn't. Christianity, as some would say today, I would tell you this, biblically Christianity is not the white man's religion. It's every man's religion. All of us. Which means this, the gospel that brings us salvation is not about face, it's not about race, it's about grace. See, the basis of our, and this is the word, look what he says in the text. In every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right 
key word is acceptable to him. See, acceptable to him. So you're not acceptable to God because of your face or your race, but because whether you have experienced by faith his grace. And so here's what Peter wants us to know. Here's what he learned about the gospel. That humanity's greatest problem, which makes us separate from God and one another, our greatest problem is not a skin problem, it is a sin problem. And it goes way deeper than what color of skin or nationality or ethnicity you're back. And, and God knows that, and that's how God looks at people, and that's how God treats people. So with that basis and that foundation in mind, we're ready to look at our text today, our first case study on conversion in the book of Acts. And we want to ask the question, when you're converted, when you get saved by grace, what does it look like? What happens in someone's life? Because maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, oh, I think I know I'm converted. Well, well, listen, because maybe it'll reinforce the things you already know. But you might be thinking, well, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. Am I truly a Christian? We'll we'll take a look at this and and see if these things that mark a a converted person also are characteristic of your life. So let me give them to you. We'll unpack them. There's three of them. And so let me give them to you. Number one, salvation by grace means you have a totally new life ruler. Totally new ruler. Look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news, which is a Roman term. Good news was borrowed from the Roman culture. Good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Now, to understand, because he's Lord of all, it says. Now, you have to understand that the person who's getting converted in this passage is a Gentile, not a Jew. His name is Cornelius. Please look at Acts 10 and verse 1. At Caesarea, which is Caesar's name inside the name of the city, and there's a reason for that, is because Caesarea was a little mini Rome. Only a very few cities outside of Rome itself and outside of Italy had colony status. Caesarea was one of them. And so you picture this in your mind. Caesarea is a little mini Rome. It was trying to replicate everything that Rome was about. That's where Cornelius, the Roman centurion in the military, lived. He was part of what was known, chapter 10, verse 1, as the Italian cohort. He was very prestigious. He was a man who had a lot of wealth. He ruled 100 soldiers, or he was over them. That was his job. And his job as a Roman soldier, a centurion, and in a mini colony called Caesarea, here's what his job was. He was to police the peace. His job was to make sure that all the Jewish people in Caesarea, because that was the city in Judea, that they didn't get out of line, that they never really forgot that Caesar was in charge, that he was king, that he was emperor, and it was his job to make sure that everybody had the kind of peace that Rome gave. That kind of peace called Pax Romana in the Latin. It's a peace that came through violence. It came through dominance. It came through literally sometimes hundreds and even thousands of people being crucified on crosses at the same time. For a guy like Cornelius who was living in Caesarea and was Italian and Rome was his capital, and he was a centurion. Uh, Centurions equaled Rome. They stood for Rome. They represented Rome and everything it was. And a guy like him, 
before he came and heard the gospel, all of his pre-Christian allegiances were definitely Caesar. He was all about Caesar being Lord. He was all about emperor worship. Almost all the archaeology and all the historical documents, centurions, almost everyone to the number, were emperor worshipers. They even had in Caesarea statues, huge Colossus statues, and I mean taller than this building, of Augustus Caesar and the goddess Roma who ruled over Rome. But here's the thing. Peter comes, given a vision by God to both Cornelius and Peter. God sends Peter to that city, and and here's what it says. He offers him a different kind of peace, see, a different source of peace. See, all the peace that Cornelius had ever known, see if this doesn't sound like you, All the peace he'd ever known was the peace that the world had given him, what Caesar had given him. The only peace he knew was the one that he had earned and made for himself, the one that he had tried to get through dominance and at times violence and many military campaigns that he had probably been on. So Pax Romana, peace through Rome and peace through the government and peace through Caesar was the only kind of peace he ever knew. And then he hears Peter come to him and says to him, no, there's another kind of peace. It's Pax Christi. It's peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And for the first time in his life, he came to this realization that the real peace that I'm looking for isn't found in Rome. It's found in Jesus It's not a peace through Caesar. It's a peace through the Christ. It's not a peace that comes by putting people on the cross. It's a peace comes from one who is willing to take the cross for others, see. And that's why the gospel had to be given to Cornelius. He had to come to the realization of what peace really was about. A commentator I read this week whose name is C. Gavin Rowe rightly interprets verse 36 this way. Here's how he translated it. Peace through Jesus Christ. In our text, it has it in parentheses, like it's just another understanding of the title of Jesus Christ. But he says, no, that's not how it was meant in the original language. He, he translates it, peace through Jesus Christ. This one, this one is Lord of all. Meaning, to a guy like Cornelius, it's not Caesar who is Lord of all. It's not Caesar who gives peace. This one, meaning not that one. This one, Jesus, he is Lord of all the nations. He's the one that controls the world. He's the one who gives peace. He's the one. So it's not a parenthetical statement. It's a political, a, a political argument, meaning it's not just something on the side. No, it's a main point. Here's what it means. Jesus is Lord of all, not Caesar. Real peace in your life can't be found in what the world offers, only in what Jesus offers. So let me tell you, here's what conversion is. For Cornelius, conversion meant this, exchanging Caesar is Lord for Jesus is Lord. See what I mean? You get a totally new ruler in your life when you get converted. So what does that mean for you and me? Let me give you a principle from that that understanding. Whatever or whoever rules your life, hear me, whatever or whoever rules your life will determine the peace that you experience every day. Can I say it again? Whatever or whoever rules your life, functionally rules your life, will determine the kind of peace you get every day. As I've studied the Bible, I've come to the conclusion that Pax Romana and Pax Americana 
are very much the same. Today in our culture, peace try to, people try to find peace, and we've seen it recently, haven't we? Through military power, through nationalism, and people think that you're going to get peace in your life because you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, and we saw what that can lead to as the attack was on the Capitol. People want to find or think they can find peace in financial power if the economy goes right in their job and the investments and the stocks that they have and they get a stimulus check or they get a raise at work. See, and they think that they got a little bit more money and a little bit more retirement, a little bit more savings, a little bit more in their investments. See, that would be the time that they really could find peace. And believe it or not, as good as the things that could be so good is medical power. People think, you know what, I just really need my, I will feel so much better and I will be less anxious and less fearful if I could just get the vaccine. If I could get the vaccine, shot one and shot two, as good as that is, if it comes out, I'll probably, I'm sure I'll get it. But can I tell you this? There's no peace, not lasting, ultimately knowing I've got a vaccine. Sexual power, so people want to change their gender, they want to change their identity, they want to find something else because if they think if they could change everything that they are, that they could find peace. Racial power, people think if I could just prove that we're superior or if I could get equality and people will go to all kinds of extremes, looting, rioting, violence to get it. And it doesn't matter if it's white or black or any other color. Can I tell you, racial power, but you I'll be honest, you can't find peace there. Relational power, if I could get married, if my spouse and I would have a better marriage, if I could have children, if we could have, and on and on it goes. Personal power, if I could achieve success, if I could get that degree, if I could get that position, see, then I'd have peace. But see, that's what happens. That's what happened with Cornelius he went to the wrong source to find peace his whole life, and it wasn't until he was confronted with the gospel, like some of you this morning are, that you, kind of, you find out the real source of peace. It's not the world, and it's not the government, and it's not anything that we, they can offer. It's in Jesus. It's peace through Jesus Christ. You know why? Because he is the one who is Lord of all. So let me ask you, point blank, right? Who or what is really ruling your life? Because you might be here this morning and you might be at home listening and you know as well as I do, if you're honest, there's an emptiness, there's a hole, there's a vacuum, there's a huge chasm in your heart and life and you fill it with all kinds of things and you think, I don't get it, I don't understand. I had this and then I got this and this happened to me and, so, and I'm empty. I'm lacking peace. And maybe you're finding power or money or sex or success or relationships or health concerns, racial superiority, and you're trying to find it by powering over, by doing it the way the world offers. And God says you'll never find that peace that way. So what are your loyalties? Where are your allegiances? Who is really Lord in your life? Because conversion, getting saved by grace for Cornelius, was a totally new ruler, a totally new person in charge, a totally new allegiance. Let me give an example. It'd be like, this is what happens in conversion and how the change to who your allegiance goes to. It'd be like people, or my sister lives in Kansas City, Pastor Lawrence is from Kansas City, and the Super Bowl is tonight. Imagine a stadium filled with all these Kansas City Chief fans, first time in history having the Super Bowl at the very home stadium of the team who's in it. That's never happened before. And so imagine it's filled with Kansas City Chief fans. 
And right before the service, right before the service, right before the game, 90-some percent of all the Kansas City fans decide they take off their hats, their jerseys, their cu- and they become Buccaneer fans. You'd say, Pastor Walker, that's a joke. That never happened. You're right. It wouldn't. You know what would happen? Someone who had their allegiance on one side at the very moment the game, the Super Bowl, is going to happen. Can you imagine them switching from this allegiance to this one? From this loyalty? See, here, I don't want my KC. Can I have your Tampa Bay Buccaneers? That's not going to happen. My sister's watching. She goes, that's definitely not going to happen. Right? What would, ha- what would make that happen? Supernatural change. <laughs> not the game so much but in salvation. See, my allegiance is Caesar is Lord, and, and from Caesar is Lord to Jesus is Lord, only God's grace has the power to do that. But that's what conversion looks like. It's a totally new ruler in your life. Secondly, salvation means you have a totally new religion. Chapter 10 and verse 2 says, this is the amazing, really, uh, portrayal of who the person Cornelius was. We know he's a Roman centurion. We know he used to be an emperor worship. But what was he like? Well, he was personally a devout man. That means he was serious about religion. He, he feared God. He was a proselyte. As a Gentile, he could never become a full accepted Judy, Jewish person. But he was a Gentile who feared God. That was a little title based on people who had proselyted over to Judaism. And, he, and, and all of his household. So he was a family man. He was a, seemingly a decent husband, a good father. His family fathers fo- follows him. And it says this, he gives alms generously. He didn't just give a little bit in the plate at the synagogue when he was allowed to go. No, he gave generously. He had a lot of money and he invested it in a synagogue and the things that the Jewish people and, and worshiping the God of the Old Testament were about. And then it says he prayed continually, so much so that when God's vision of the angel comes, it says that his life and his alms had come up as a memorial for, even God was impressed. He noticed Cornelius, he was different. He wasn't just your average proselyte Jewish person or Gentile person. But as good as he was, and as religious as he was, and all of those things, listen to this. In chapter 10 and verse 3 of Acts, he gets a vision from an angel of God, and notice what the angel does not say. Let me repeat it, does not say. He does not say to Cornelius, hey, Cornelius, you are so good, and God just wants you to know that if you keep on doing the things you're doing and going the direction that you're going, I'm sure you're going to make it to heaven. Everybody up here is confident. Look at you. You're such a great guy. You're doing all the right things. See, that's how we would think in America. You look at someone and say, wow, they're a really good spouse. They got really nice children. They had a nice job. They're really helpful. They give money at church. They do some good things in our community. Wow, just keep doing that. I'm sure, I'm sure if that's who you are, you're going to make it. But what does the angel say? What does he really say? You know what he says? Cornelius, you're a really great person. Therefore, you need to send messengers to Peter so he can come and give you the gospel because you radically need to be converted. Did you catch that? You need Peter to come and tell you that Jesus hung in a tree and rose again to forgive your sins. You are a good guy, a really good guy, but you know what you need? Converted. You need to be changed. It's stunning, isn't it? It's stunning that this kind of a guy, this good guy, this religious guy, this moral guy, this family guy needs to be converted 
radically changed. Nicodemus, John 3, he is a Pharisee. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He has impeccable credentials. He believes in a high view Christology of Jesus. He believes this. He says to Jesus in the opening verses when he meets Jesus by night, he says, Jesus, we all know, I know you have been sent to us from God. So minimally he believes he's a prophet. He's got this high Christology. But what does Jesus say to him? Nicodemus, you are such a good man, so moral, so righteously. You know the Bible inside and out. You are moral and spiritual and religious. And so here's what you need. You just need a couple things added to your spiritual resume to complete it. You just need a little touch up here and a little bit better over here. There's a couple, of, you know, but by and large, no. You know what he tells Nicodemus? Famous line, John 3, 3 and 3, 7. You must be born again. Imagine how he heard that. Nicodemus, the religious of the religious people, the most religious, here's what he says to him. You need to be born again. You need a spiritual extreme makeover. You need radically converted. You need, it's like Nicodemus, you need to start over from scratch. See, that's hard for religious people to hear, is it not? I mean, that's not the way we think. We normally think of, and you see on TV, John 3, 3, be born again, and maybe they'll hold it up at the Super Bowl. When you think of being born again, what do you think of? Well, the most people think of your life has to be a wreck. You have to be living on Skid Row in New York City, or your life is falling apart at the seams, like you're addicted, you're a criminal, you're immoral, or something like that. But here's what God says. He comes to these moral, religious, really good guys, Cornelius, Nicodemus. Later on, we're going to see in Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus. You couldn't have been any more fervently religious and moral than he was. And God comes to all of them, and you know what he says to them? You need to be radically changed from the inside out. You need a conversion. And you know what it looks like? It looks like not a religious fear of God, but a relational fear of God. In 10.2, here's what Cornelius is described by. He fears God. But here's what Peter says that conversion looks like. It's anyone who fears God, fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. So there's a religious fear and there's a relationship fear. You say, Pastor Walker, what would the difference be between those two? Religious fear is goes to church. But relational fear is someone who sees themselves as part of the church. Religious fear is my self-righteousness. I do what I can, I do what I can to be accepted by God. But relational fear is I am depending on Jesus' righteousness and I do the things I do because I am already accepted by God through Jesus. So please listen when I say this, especially those today who at Faith Baptist Church or Catholic Church or Lutheran or Presbyterian or any other denomination. Christian conversion is not a call to traditional religion or traditional morality. It's not. It is a challenge to it. It is a challenge to it. It is a challenge to thinking that on the, ex on the outside that your traditional religiosity and going to church and being catechized or baptized or all the other things that you might do and take the Lord's Supper and, and that all those external things make you right with God. Ask Cornelius, ask Nicodemus, ask Saul of Tarsus and they'll tell you that it's far more than that. 
See, real conversion is coming to the realization that you're not good enough and only Jesus can save you. And that's why Cornelius had to find out this reality. Peace only comes through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now you get to 36 and you find out all those things. He realizes that. And then Peter breaks into, and you can see it for yourself, look in the text, verses 37 through 42. We have five verses full of details summarizing Jesus' life from the beginning of his ministry until his ascension into heaven. And what you find out is, who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, he's Lord of all. He's God. Then you find out Peter calls him Jesus of Nazareth. So he's not only God, but he's man. That's who Jesus is. This is what Peter's going through. He's trying to say, hey, this is why Jesus deserves and qualifies to be the Lord of all. He is the only Savior. This is why Caesar isn't. Because Jesus isn't just one of the gods. He is the God. He is a man and a God. And, and, and what did he do, Jesus? It says he did good. He went around healing people who were possessed oppressed by the devil. He went around doing good all the time. So Jesus had God's power. But more than that, he wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a man with a message. He wasn't just a really good guy doing good things in a good culture. You know, the Bible says this. Look at the text. He was put or hung on a tree. See, he is God's answer to our sin. He took our curse for us. Leviticus says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus died the way he did. He, he was God and he was man. But the reason he died was not so you could think that you could just do good and merit God's favor. Or he would have stayed in heaven and not suffered and died and just yelled down, hey, be good. But the reason is, is he came because you and I can't be good enough. We can't be religious enough. And then he says in that little five-verse package that God, after Jesus rose a from the dead on the third day, was seen by all kinds of witnesses. They had meals with him, and that he ascended into heaven because it's gonna, he's going to come back as the judge of the living and the dead. Now, see, you've got Jesus' whole ministry. Why does Peter insert that here? Here's why. Because people who are truly converted realize the difference between what it means to be good and do good. See, you can do as much good as you like, but that doesn't make you good. Jesus makes you good. And what did it take? His life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the throne. See, Caesar can't claim those things, but Jesus can. So being saved by grace is not turning over a new leaf. It's not joining some AA behavioral modification program. It's not belonging to a certain denomination like Baptist or Catholic. Here's what Peter says as he ends the text. It's believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. So we found so far, what does conversion, true conversion look like? It looks like having a totally new ruler in your life. New loyalties, new allegiances. Secondly, it's having a totally new religion in your life. It's not the religion of I do it, but God does it. See? And lastly, salvation by grace means this, that you have a totally new reception. The last verse reads, 43, to him, meaning Jesus, all, there's our word, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, see, the prophets bear witness to it, the Old Testament, the apostles are bearing witness. So here's, here's what Peter's saying. You gotta get this. It's the message of the whole Bible. If you miss this, you don't understand anything in the Bible. Here's the message. Who believes in him, whoever believes in him, 
Whoever, no matter what your skin color, ethnicity, background, culture, language group, whoever believes in him, here's the word, receives forgiveness of sins. Remember back when I told you in the beginning the word partial is a compound word? Receive face. Well, the first part, receive face, receive, is the same word used at the end. I put them together and I came up with this. You know what I, it's, I think it says? God does not receive face, meaning he's not partial, showing favor to any color or any race or any kind of people. God does not receive face so that you can receive forgiveness. See? See, God's offer of salvation this morning is not for white people or black people only or Indian people or Hispanic people or anyone else. Here it is. Whoever believes in him. Now, what does that mean? Last grammatical point. At the beginning, it said, peace through Jesus Christ. At the end, it says, forgiveness through his name. See the two words, through? Peace comes through him. Forgiveness comes through him. Put it together. You know what it means? How do I get the peace I'm looking for? The peace I can't find in all these other things. Peace with God. Peace in your life is the forgiveness of sins. It's only when you come to Jesus Christ who died for the, on the cross for your sins and rose again, who is the judge of the living, it's only when you come to the realization that you cannot be good enough and you call out to him and, and, and this morning you could do this and you could say, Father, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and Jesus is my only hope. I cannot find peace on my own with you, God, or in my heart. I cannot find forgiveness of sins. I can't earn it. I can't work for it. I can't be good enough. It's when you come to the realization like Cornelius had to and Nicodemus had to and Saul of Tarsus had to come to that it's not because my religion. It's not because of my denomination. It's not because of any good works I've done. None of those things are going to do what I need the most. And you know what that is? I need my sins forgiven. I need to be right with God. So the peace you're looking for it's through the very same agency that the forgiveness comes. Peace is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's when you'll have it. My favorite book outside the Bible is Pilgrim's Progress. And I love the scene at the very, toward the beginning of the book actually, his whole life he's been carrying around this burden. This burden is his sin and, he, and it weighs him down and he, he's so depressed and discouraged his wife won't come with him to the celestial city and he's trying to make it there and he gets to the hill and he, he looks up the hill and it's so far, he can't climb it, there's no way. But then Jesus Christ comes and the, the Bible says that he accepts him and receives the forgiveness and it's an awesome picture if you have the illustrated versions and the huge burden that he had been carrying that would never allow him to have any peace in his life it came off and it rolled down the hill from the cross of Calvary and he found it or could see it no more, the Bible, that, that book says. That's what you're looking for. A lot of you this morning, you're carrying around a big burden of your own and you're trying to find the peace you're looking for and in your burden on the back that you bear every single day, you're trying to find it but the anxiety fills it and the depression fear fills it and the fear fills it and you're trying to say, oh, if I could just, my marriage, my family, my job, if I just felt better, if I could just lose this and if I could just do this and, and it just seems like every year the burden on, the, on your back grows larger and larger. Come to the cross today. Come to the one, the one who is Lord of all. Come to him with your burden, all of it. Throw it on him.
because he cares for you. He died for you, in fact, and rose again. If you want to have lasting peace, you won't find it in a bigger bank account. You won't find it in being religious. You won't find it in the corner office with the big window on the top floor. You won't find it in having another child to bring your marriage with your spouse closer. You won't find it at the end of a needle. You won't find it at the bottom of a bottle. And you won't find it in anyone else's bed. You only find it at the foot of the cross with Jesus. See, that's what it looks like. Conversion looks like a new ruler, a new religion, a new reception. See, now I have received forgiveness, and so Jesus has received me. I'm acceptable to him. Is that true of you? Have you really been converted? If not, you can this morning. You can say a prayer, trust you, it's not a prayer. Remember, it's a new ruler, a new religion, a new relationship, a new reception. You can come to God through Jesus Christ and through his cross, death, and resurrection. You can find that conversion this morning. That and that alone holds the peace that you seek. Let's pray.